Welcome to Conversations on Public Health, a regular program from the Harvard School of Public Health that explores current issues in the field. Today we're speaking with Daniel Halperin, lecturer on international health. Halperin's work focuses on the heterosexual transmission of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. In a new policy analysis in the May 9, 2008 issue of the journal Science, Halperin and his co-authors argue that the current widely used HIV prevention strategies are not the most effective ones. You and your co-authors have written a provocative paper that says that the international community needs to significantly revamp the way it thinks about HIV prevention. What's wrong with the current thinking? There was an interesting perspective paper in the New England Journal of Medicine last month by Dr. Yamada, who is head of the Global Health Program at the Gates Foundation. And he writes, among other things, that one of the reasons that certain diseases, such as HIV-AIDS, uh, have not been as successfully addressed as could have been the case is because, in his words, the uh, reactions, uh, responses tend to reflect consensus views and avoid controversy. And the 10 of us who have written this paper feel that a lot of the thinking and the strategies that have been implemented for HIV prevention, especially in the high HIV prevalence or what we call generalized epidemics of sub-Saharan Africa um, have tended to be approaches that are based on a kind of consensus thinking. In other words, let's just keep doing what we've been doing all along because we believe that those approaches will work. We do believe that these particular strategies have some value for public health, but we feel that specifically for HIV prevention, they tend to have limited impact or at least the evidence seems to be increasingly weak for their impact on redu reducing the number of new HIV infections each year. And what strategies specifically are you referring to? Well, um, some of us like to talk about, in a half-joking way, what we call the holy trinity of HIV prevention, which is uh, condom promotion and distribution, voluntary counseling and testing, or more recently, just different forms of HIV testing. People talk about opt-out HIV testing, for example, and uh, treatment of other sexually transmitted infections. Those are three of the main approaches that have been used for many years now for HIV prevention. And, you know, they have value. For example, in most of the world, um, sexual transmission is what we call occurring in a very concentrated way. In other words, in most uh, countries in the world, the, the large majority of, of, of HIV transmission is happening in the context of sex work or prostitution or among men who have sex with men or among injection drug users or, of course, the, the sexual partners of any of these um, these three types of populations. And for sex work, and to some extent for men who have sex with men and, and, and injecting drug users, approaches like condom promotion can be successful, and in some cases quite successful. And there are, there are examples like Thailand and a number of other countries where the kind of 100% condom approach, where you promote condom use in, in the brothel context, has really led to reductions in STDs, including HIV. Um, the problem is in those approximately 10, possibly 12 countries, 
which are all in Africa and almost all of them in southern Africa, where we have these truly generalized epidemics, where HIV has has gone far beyond these sort of classic high-risk populations and is really in the general population. We find that approaches like condom uh, distribution and promotion, which is still something that is important to do and can probably contribute, we find that it has unfortunately less impact. At least that's what the evidence suggests. And the main reason there is that most HIV transmission is happening in more regular relationships. It's not happening in just casual sex or, or commercial sex. It's happening in these sort of ongoing sexual relationships where we just find inevitably uh, getting consistent condom use to happen or, or to maintain consistent condom use over time is extremely difficult. It can happen for some people, but most uh, couples find that difficult to do. And when people are having multiple and concurrent partnerships, in other words, when they're having two or more of these regular ongoing relationships at the same time, which is a fairly common pattern in different parts of Africa, for example, then uh, again, while we would still want to promote condom use, we feel that the evidence doesn't show it's having too much impact. And, and similarly for, for HIV testing and for the treatment of other sexually transmitted infections, both of those approaches are, are good things to do for public health. Um, it's, it's good to reduce the incidence of syphilis and other sexually transmitted infections. It's a good thing to do from a public health standpoint. And from an HIV AIDS standpoint, it's very important that people have access to testing so they can learn their status, uh, in particular because it's a, it's a doorway to, to getting access to care and treatment and so on. So we're not opposed to these approaches, but in terms of the actual impact on the incidence of HIV infection or the rate of new HIV infections, we find very little evidence that either HIV testing and knowing, knowing, when, knowing your status uh, or treating other sexually transmitted infections, they don't seem to be having uh, much impact, or at least the evidence is, 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 seems quite weak at this point. And uh, those, those are the, some of the approaches. We also talk about um, abstinence, which has been increasingly promoted, um, of course, in, in, um, by this government's uh, uh, foreign AIDS program. And while we you know, believe that it's, it's the correct uh, uh, approach to, for youth, it's, it's a good message for youth that they should abstain if possible, uh, epidemiologically we feel that it's unlikely to have much impact on the epidemic because um, essentially everywhere where we've looked, uh, most HIV infections happen in people in their 20s or 30s or 40s. And by then, most people are sexually active, and it would be very difficult to get people in those age groups to, to practice abstinence. So if the evidence for all the current HIV prevention strategies is unclear, is there anything out there that works? Well, we wish the the lists were a little longer. Um, some some there is there is clear evidence for for, for some interventions certainly. Um, you know, in terms of of preventing mother to child transmission, for example, um, we now know, given the resources and given you know the pro- proper methodologies, we we can really reduce. Um, the rate of mother-child transmission in, in the United States has been greatly reduced, and we're getting some success stories from, from some uh, developing countries like Botswana in southern a- Africa, which has been able to reduce rates considerably there. Unfortunately, um, mother-child transmission accounts for a relatively small proportion of total transmission. So in a country like Botswana, even if you have a you know, fantastic mother-child transmission program, that's great. You're saving uh, you know, the lives of, of a number of 
of babies and so on, but you're not going to turn the, the, the larger epidemic around because it's a relatively small proportion. Similarly, um, cleaning up the blood supply, making sure that um, blood banks are safe and so on, and that kind of sort of medical, uh, adjusting sort of medical transmission is very important to do and, and is certainly effective and, and, and has been done in most places for, for quite so many years now. Again, in, in most places at least, uh, it, this only accounts for a relatively very small proportion of total transmission. So again, you're not going to turn the epidemic around, but it, these are effective methods. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, condom promotion and other kinds of risk reduction measures for high-risk groups, as particularly uh, prostitutes or sex workers, um, I think you know it's not the absolute highest level of evidence. We're not talking about randomized trial evidence, but I think the evidence is really very compelling that that kind of approach is successful in those epidemics where a lot of transmission is happening in the context of sex work. The, the problem, as I said, is that when we get into these very high prevalence epidemics in southern Africa, where 15 to 25 percent of adults are infected with HIV, in those situations you could have the best possible um, sex work program or, you know, the best programs addressing high-risk groups, but you're not going to, you know, that's good to do, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, and they could be effective approaches for those groups, but you're not going to really have much of an impact on the greater epidemic since a relatively very small proportion of total transmission is happening due to those um, high-risk groups. So in terms of what could work to really turn the epidemic around when you have these very severe generalized epidemics, we unfortunately only come up with uh, two approaches so far that seem like they would have uh, major uh, impact. The first that we discuss is male circumcision, and there have been many dozens of studies over the last 20 years, even more than 20 years now, showing a strong association between lack of male circumcision and greater risk in men of heterosexual HIV infection. These associations, which include very striking ecological associations, in other words, in those parts of Africa where almost all men are circumcised, we never see higher than about 5% HIV prevalence in adults at most, and often less than that, versus uh, those countries, and again, they're mostly in southern Africa where where the large majority of men are not circumcised, we see this very explosive epidemics. This kind of evidence has now been uh, absolutely proven, or at least as proven as anything can be in public health, by the publication of three randomized controlled trials, including two that were published a year ago in The Lancet. These three trials all were stopped early because the results were so strong, and uh, at minimum they suggest about a 60% reduction in uh, risk for men who are circumcised. So this is pretty much incontrovertible now in the scientific community and uh, World Health Organization, the UN, Aid Pro the UN uh, uh, AIDS program and other groups, including the United States' foreign AIDS program, have all endorsed male circumcision as a viable and potentially very important strategy for HIV prevention in these generalized epidemics. Uh, we just feel that um, there could be more movement on this, there could be more resources going into this approach. It's getting better all the time. It used to be absolutely completely ignored. Now there's certainly more focus. And, and the other approach that we talk about is the issue of partner reduction, or in other words, promoting reductions in multiple and especially concurrent partnerships. And basically, again, this is not randomized controlled trial evidence, but we have 
the same or similar kind of ecological evidence that we do for the so, sort of 100% condom approaches that we've seen in sex work-driven epidemics. In a number of places in Africa, in about half a dozen countries now, we have actually seen HIV prevalence go down appreciably. And in virtually every one of those instances where HIV prevalence has reduced at the national level, or in some cases at the subnational level, we have pretty uh, compelling data from large national surveys and so on, suggesting that people have reduced the, pro the, the, the proportion of people reporting having multiple partnerships in the previous year has been reduced appreciably. So we have a, 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 an, an increasingly consistent pattern has emerged, where in those countries where HIV has actually gone down, the most striking change that we can see on surveys and so on is a notable reduction in people having multiple partners. Conversely, in those countries like South Africa, for example, where there's no evidence of, of any reduction in HIV, we also see no reduction, uh, no evidence of any reduction in, in the number of people having multiple partnerships. And of course, epidemiologically and just pure common sense, it makes sense that if people reduce their their number of uh, their, their level of multiple partnerships, that you would see a reduction in HIV. And it's a, it's a very low cost, if you will, low tech approach that is intuitively obvious and, and it, it, it's not really rocket science, but it's not been uh, a strategy that for the most part has been focused on or prioritized by most donors or even by most governments. Uganda is, is the most famous um, exception. In the, in the late 1980s, they had the so-called zero grazing approach where the government, the president, and so on, um, very aggressively encouraged people to stick to their one partner or, or in the case of polygamy, to stick to their married partners. And, and, we, and we see uh, apparently resulting from that a, a large decline in the number of people reporting multiple partnerships in a relatively short period of time between the late 1980s and the mid-1990s, and also uh, f shortly thereafter, uh, HIV starts to come down. More recently, we've seen similar trends in Kenya and in Zimbabwe, in Cote d'Ivoire, and some other parts of Africa. So those are the two main approaches that we think um, could actually work. Um, another area that we didn't have time to address in the article is in that in that sub part of the epidemic that I referred to earlier of mother to child transmission we do feel that there's been uh, kind of single-mindedness emphasis on the medication aspect of mother to child uh, uh, prevention in other words uh, making medications like nevirapine available to mothers and children to reduce the transmission risk and that's fine but there are some other aspects that are also part of the WHO approach which we feel have been underemphasized like uh, making family planning uh, services more available to women because there are many women especially when they find out that they're HIV positive, would like to limit the number of children they have. And of course, that would ultimately lower the number of children that are born with HIV. And also, um, there should be much more focus on promoting exclusive breastfeeding for the th first three to six months of life, because now there are several s very compelling studies showing that that greatly reduces the risk of transmission compared to mixed feeding practices, which are still the norm. Uh, but again, that would only address a relatively small proportion of HIV transmission in these epidemics. What do you and your co-authors believe needs to change in terms of funding for HIV prevention? Well, first of all, we would like to say, and maybe it wasn't exactly clear enough in, in our short paper, but we feel that funding is very important, but uh, it's also not just only a funding issue. It's really about um, attention and focus. And for example, that zero grazing 
program that I mentioned, Uganda, really didn't cost very much. It actually cost peanuts. Um, but there was a, the president of the country and the government and many people throughout the society talked a lot, and the media talked a lot about this notion of zero grazing. So it, it wasn't a, a high-budget program, but it was very intensive. So um, it isn't just a, a funding issue. But of course, there are, there are funding issues, and, and male circumcision services obviously cost something. Um, there have been some recent estimates made of what it would cost to really scale up um, access to male circumcision in these high HIV prevalence countries in Africa where male circumcision is currently not generally practiced. And although it's it's difficult to come up with an exact price tag, the, the range, the, the estimates tend to hover around $1 billion would be needed in the next few years or so to really scale up if this were to happen. Um, so we feel that that would certainly be a legitimate, legitimate uh, expense, especially given the many billions of dollars a year that uh, are being spent on HIV prevention and care. Uh, so spending a billion dollars over, say, the next five years would certainly seem to be a reasonable um, expenditure. And then also there should be uh, an increase in, in funding for these kind of behavior change promotion programs that would really focus particularly on the issue of multiple and especially multiple concurrent partnerships. Um, so those two in particular. We're not, we're not saying stop funding for condom programs or testing programs or, or treating other sexually transmitted infections because, as I said earlier, we feel that those approaches all have some public health value, but we do feel there needs to be a kind of shifting um, of priorities. And if I could just add one last comment that's certainly outside the purview of this particular article, but um, if we had had more space, we might have mentioned it at least, which is there's also, of course, the, the, the sort of larger issue of funding for, for, for public health in general. And there has been some discussion uh, ongoing for a while and in, in increasingly uh, recently, maybe increasingly, about um, sort of, you know, what is, you know, how much funding should go to HIV AIDS vis-a-vis -vis other diseases. And, and there's some discussion that perhaps um, HIV is tending to get a, a, a perhaps inordinate proportion of total funding. Uh, I, I don't think many people are arguing that there should be huge cuts in HIV funding necessarily, but the, but the proportionality seems fairly distorted. And uh, certain diseases which are not as maybe glamorous or as you know, discussed, uh, still kill many, many, many people and don't, and are much simpler to, to treat than HIV and don't get anywhere, even a fraction of the funding that, that, that AIDS gets. So that's another, I guess, larger issue that when it comes to funding. I think maybe it's encouraging in that context that, that the things that work, so to speak, tend to be relatively inexpensive and cost-effective. So that should ultimately help with budgetary issues. This has been a Harvard School of Public Health production. Please visit us on the web at www.hsph.harvard.edu.